this is Jude Noll, and you're listening to the Norse Up Podcast, a production for NKU by NKU, highlighting the expertise of our university's faculty and staff. Following our three-part NKU in the Media series, we're back to our more traditional programming, but also recording our first episode remotely. Today, we're in conversation with Dr. Nicholas Caparuso, who's calling in from Italy. Dr. Caparuso obtained his PhD in computer engineering from the IMT Institute for Advanced Studies and is a professor of computer science here at NKU. As a researcher and instructor, he specializes in a wide range of topics, including artificial intelligence, technology entrepreneurship, and user experience. Dr. Caparuso, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jude. Thank you. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so let's start with a little background on yourself. Uh, tell us about when you first became interested in computer science and information technology. Well, I uh, had the opportunity to start tinkering with the first, my first computer uh, at the age of four. It was my father's computer. He uh, used it for his job, but I get a chance to put my hands on it. And it was this fascinating machine where that enabled you to do pretty much anything from playing games to programming to creating, you know, documents. And I became a little geek. Uh, and then uh, my, uh, my goal whenever I was playing any games was trying to understand how the game was designed. I was not really interested in the gaming aspect, but mostly in the design aspect. And that's how I started uh, studying a little bit of programming. And then uh, I got my uh, first full-time job as a web designer when I was 18 uh, and uh, got more interested in programming, especially web programming. And then I got the opportunity to work on a human computer interaction project during my uh, bachelor's degree. And that's really when I decided that, you know, computer science and especially human computer interaction was going to be my thing. And to go back just a little bit, you mentioned uh, getting into computer science through games. What were some of the games that inspired you to look deeper beyond the surface, and how did they influence you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I was thinking <laughs> about it the other day because I got um, I, I just saw that uh, edition four is just uh, was just released, and it was uh, Diablo, one um, RPG game, uh, the old fashioned the first version of uh, of that game it was really interesting because you could play as a single player, but it was also one of the first multiplayer games that enabled you to play over the internet with other people. So it was great to see how you know a video game could also be a platform where you could meet other people, socialize. It was really the beginning of the internet, and uh, and in fact, my first website was actually. Uh, a little uh, website for a, a Diablo guild. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that's how I started. <laughs> and uh, when you were studying, um, I think for all three of your degrees, if I'm correct, you were in Italy. How did your work then lead you to the United States and eventually here at NKU? Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, all my degrees were in Italy and uh, uh, my PhD school was a little bit different from traditional PhD schools in Italy in the sense that it's an international school where uh, we had students from all over the world, but we also had 
professors from pretty much everywhere. And so uh, that made me think that I could, you know, inter interact with a more uh, international uh, group of researchers and students. But we were also required to spend one and a half year abroad. And so um, as a first um, research study abroad um, experience, I went to Singapore uh, to do research on brain computer interface. And I loved it. Um, uh, and, uh, and then as my second uh, experience, uh, study abroad experience, I went to um, Santa Clara University in California, where I studied technology entrepreneurship, thanks to a, a Fulbright scholarship. And that's uh, where I learned that I really enjoy uh, working with people in the United States. There's something when it comes to like working together and, and with other people that's really enjoyable about the United States. And I've always wanted to come back. Um, right after finishing my PhD, I worked for uh, four years of my own company back in Italy, but I always uh, wanted to come back. So when I had the opportunity to, um, to exit the company, I then started looking for opportunities in the United States, uh, and specifically as I kept teaching throughout um, my postgraduate, um, I started applying for teaching positions. And first I joined Forte State University in Kansas, and then after two years, I moved to Northern Kentucky University, uh, and I couldn't be happier. <laughs> Well, that's that's great to hear. Um, and what are some of the you mentioned before the podcast, you're really enthusiastic about some of the work that your students are doing. Uh, what sort of research or projects does that include? Well, that's a bunch. Um, you mentioned uh, that my interest uh, when it comes to human computer interaction is pretty broad. And that's and that's correct. The way I teach and interpret human-computer interactions basically as a discipline where we study how we can design technology that can serve users better. So if you see human-computer interaction through this lens, then the computing aspect kind of disappears, and it's more about studying how people interact with technology in general and with products uh, that have some kind of technological component. And if you see it that way, then it's not about programming. It's not about you know the uh, algorithm side, but it's more about designing a process and a system that can help people um, have better experiences, better user experiences. Now, when it comes to that, my work with students um, in the last uh, few years really focused on uh, three different kind of areas. Uh, one area is uh, eye tracking and how eye tracking can be realized in easier and more convenient and user-friendly ways. Uh, currently, most eye tracking systems rely on you know, devices, whether it's an attachment to the computer, whether it's an external kind of hardware that you connect to your PC, or even, you know, the, uh, the head-mounted display that uh, Apple uh, showcased recently, it's an external right. device. You have to buy it in order to use eye tracking. Uh, what my students and I are doing uh, is basically uh, trying to find ways to enable 
uh, eye tracking with standard webcams so that you wouldn't need any specific hardware. It's available to you uh, immediately so that really people can start developing more applications and users can benefit uh, from this technology more easily. So that's one area. Uh, another area that I uh, started exploring um, at the beginning of my um, teaching at NKU was accessibility and how to make um, courses or materials or environments more accessible to people with disability. Um, whether it's people who are blind, people who are deaf or have some kind of motor uh, impairments. Uh, together with a, a group of faculty and students, including a student who is blind, uh, we recently received a, a grant from uh, VentureWell, uh, which is basically an institution that supports innovation, to develop materials that uh, help students who are blind to learn content that's usually very visual, very, you mm -hmm. know, uh, made for people who can see. An example, for instance, would be a networking diagram, you know, like a chart. Right. Uh, this is very easy to interpret for somebody who can see the chart, but then when it comes to students who are visually impaired, it's a challenge right. uh, for them and for their teachers, like finding a way to explain something that's an image to a student who cannot access that image, but most importantly, empowering that student to modify that image, to interact with that image. Um, so um, a, a colleague of mine, um, Brad Thomas, and a student who's blind, who's called Mason Tilly, uh, we worked together on designing a tactile toolkit that enables students to design a network topology, basically a network diagram, uh, um, using building blocks like Lego and making that interactive so that they could easily then take a picture and, uh, and, and translate it to a standard diagram or vice versa. Um, we found ways to take a standard diagram and then explain it to a student who's blind. So accessibility is really like the second um, area of focus of my research. And then finally, more recently, I started working on artificial intelligence uh, and specifically generative uh, um, artificial intelligence, generative AI, which is a new wave uh, of uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence system systems that enables machines to show some kind of creativity. Right. And especially when it comes to generative AI, I think that's something that people have, most people have only really become aware of over the past couple of years. Uh, what sort of, what sort of things does your research on generative AI entail? And what sort of, um, how does that affect the real world or like creativity in the future? Yeah. So um, in order to uh, talk about that, um, we have to understand uh, or, 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 you know, to understand the context part. So generative AI is relatively new. It's, it started in uh, 2017 with uh, a guy who said, you know, that you know, AI up to that point was used basically to classify things, to put things into, you know, buckets. 
um, right. and to crunch data. But then um, this new wave of AI uh, uses that information to then produce some content, whether it's images, text, videos, audio, and uh, and anything like that. Now, um, the first um, examples of uh, content produced with generative AI, and specifically images, were images featuring people. And already in 2019, uh, we started seeing images of people who don't exist, completely generated by AI, um, that are very, very photorealistic. So there's a big concern, clearly, with all these kinds of technologies about, you know, the potential threats of, uh, you know, uh, using these pictures to create fake profiles. So mm-hmm. uh, initially, my research about AI and generative AI specifically was about whether users are able to distinguish between uh, an AI-generated image and, uh, and, a, and an actual uh, image. And it turns out that already in 2019, it was very hard for you know people to discriminate between these two types of pictures. They it was very easy to use uh, AI-generated images to create fake profiles. Besides a few features that gave up, um, gave gave away uh, that they were created with AI. But now, uh, technology clearly has evolved, and right. images are basically undistinguishable. Um, more recently, um, I taught a honors course called "Learning from Dali." where uh, Dali is clearly um, a famous um, artist, uh, but also Dali is a generative AI system that produces images based on text. So the way it works is that we type a sentence and then the program will generate an image that can describes or represents what's described in the sentence. So for instance, we could type, you know, uh, imagine a cheeseburger on top of a skyscraper, <laughs> and then what we would see is, you know, the image of the cheeseburger right. on top of the skyscraper. Um, the the way we uh, I used it in my course was to um, basically have students get familiar with generative AI through the relationship and the interaction between AI and art. So the purpose of the class was basically understanding all the contentious aspects of generative AI, uh, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, but then uh, uh, as it relates to the relationship between um, you know, AI and art. So basically, how can we use AI to create something that has artistic value? Right. And um, together with the course, um, uh, we we designed a major social philanthropy project initiative. So uh, we connected the goal of the course with uh, I, um, you know projects that could benefit the community. So the students uh, basically learned what generative AI is. Um, they we, we discovered together how basically art throughout the whole history of art has always been influenced by technology. I always, um, uh, I, I use the example of, you know, the, the cave art um, right. where you see all these hands, right, on the walls. Now, 
they were not painted with you know standard brushes. They people did not use paint on their hands to kind of um, show the prints of their hands. What they actually did was blowing paint through pipes on their hands as they put the hands on the wall. So wow. what you see there is basically the contour of the end painted, and then the end is uh, in a way blank, or there's no paint there. And that's the first example of the use of some kind of technology, really very you know, rudimental, to create art. Mm-hmm. And, and so this new wave of AI is just uh, another way to create art with technology. And then um, we connected that with projects that benefit three communities in Newport and specifically Southgate Street School, which is a um, student that educated, is a school that educated uh, African-American students during segregation. Um, The uh, East Row Historic District, um, which is the area of Newport where all the historic houses are. And then the west side, which is a more kind of developing area of the uh, of the city of Newport. And so the students met with uh, the members of the community. They brainstormed different projects, and they came up with three completely different projects, each of which is a demonstration of how AI can be used to produce art that um, delivers some value to the community. And I'll be happy to talk uh, about them some more, but I'll uh, leave it to you if you have more questions about what I've said so far. Yeah. Um. So specifically, the images you mentioned about the school in Newport. What what sort of prompts were you putting into the AI, and how are you using that to illustrate uh, the concepts in the project? Yeah. So the idea for the book. After we talked uh, with the school, um, with the director of the museum, was really to uh, pay a tribute to two individuals who, uh, when the school closed, reclaimed the school and continued paying the property taxes and preserved the building so that instead of being torn down and becoming a parking lot, the building is still there. Um, so the goal of the book was to pay a tribute to these two people. Uh, one of uh, one of them is, has passed away, but the other one is still active in, uh, um, you know, working with the school and preserving the building. So um, what we wanted to do is basically create a time travel that brought that brings the reader to when the school was operating. So we asked people to recount what their life as a student at Southgate Street School was. And Mm. we took their memories and kind of re-engineered some of their memories to produce uh, images that represent how Southgate Street School uh, looked back then. Wow. So an example of a prompt would be, uh, well, first of all, we asked to reproduce the outside of the building, which is a kind of a red brick type building, uh, two-story building 
we asked the system to reproduce the outside of the building back then with students inside, you know, studying or taking classes. And then uh, I have some images here that I'll be happy to show oh, sure. uh, at some point. Um, if I can uh, uh, share the screen so you can see yeah. like how uh, the um, um, how the AI system um, basically uh, was able to render these images. Um, so some of them involve the outside of the building itself. Others are images that talk about the life of these two people as students and help understand the struggles that the students at Southgate Street School went through being that, you know, it was a student, uh, it was a school that um, uh, where teachers themselves were struggling financially, where students couldn't get books and they had to use whatever they had, whatever they could get. And uh, regardless of that, uh, students were able to get an education. Some of them um, uh, were able to progress to, you know, college and get a college degree and then kind of transfer that legacy to the future generations. Uh, when it comes to, you know, prompts to create images with AI, it's really like, um, I mean, sometimes we think that we would just enter some text and the AI would come up with beautiful images, whereas um, this this course and this projects where um, an opportunity to learn that there's a process behind, even if we just type a simple text, mm -hmm. uh, in order to get the AI that create what we really want, we need to rework that text to kind of collaborate with the AI and go back and forth in a kind of conversation where we type an input, the AI produces an output image, and then based on what the AI represents, we tweak the input so the AI can refine the result until we're happy about it. And some of these images are really um, just a representation of what the school looked like then, but others are more kind of concept art. Um, and uh, the image contains uh, over 86 pages. The, the book contains over 86 pages with images that represent uh, what li life at Southgate Street School was like, but also the concept of um, Southgate Street School being a landmark of uh, not only just Black education, but also uh, education in general and diversity, uh, for which the city of Newport was really kind of known for. Um, right. Sometimes, you know, especially um, in the in the last few past few years, there have been a lot of conversations around the topic of you know, Black Lives Matter, and in this sense, uh, the city of Newport is really an example of integration uh, throughout the recounts of. Um, the different students would learn that um, people in Newport, even if the schools were segregated, were living together as a community. Right. And that's what we wanted to represent in this book. And if generative AI is at this point where we can, you know, recreate these 
scenes from history or people's memories in nearly photorealistic detail. What sort of progress do you think we're going to see over the next like five, 10 years of AI? How, how, how big of a leap is it going to be? And where do you think those innovations are going to come? Oh, wow. Uh, that's probably the one million dollar question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'll be able to answer. Um, so um, I, I think the way generative AI um, is working right now, is, I mean, generative AI is at a point where quality is already uh, pretty solid. Um, just a few years ago, um, a painting designed by AI sold at an auction for just about two hundred thousand um, dollars, and uh, and that that was you know two years ago. But in two years, the progress has been immense. Right now, um, the, the way AI generative AI is evolving is, I think, in two directions. Uh, in one direction is in a way horizontal. Um, meaning or vertical, if you will, uh, meaning that we are generative AI systems are increasing their quality, are producing images that are more accurate, larger, that are able to understand uh, what we say way better. Um, and uh, new generative AI systems are able to rework an output and modify parts of it. Because the main problem with AI-generated images right now is that every time you would have to generate a new image. Mm. Um, uh, but there are new systems that uh, can take an image and then you can actually point at the parts that you want to modify and how, and the image will, and the system will just tweak these um, parts to make the image better. Uh, a big area. Uh, when it comes to generative AI is, you know, um, improving pictures and existing um, artworks. And so this is the vertical piece, like improving the quality of all these systems. Then there's a more horizontal, um, in a way, growth or development that is happening and will happen. And it's basically the different types of media that can be produced with AI. Um, initially, it was just uh, text to text, meaning that we would create a prompt and AI would respond with a text output. ChatGPT is an example right. of that. Uh, then we're seeing text to image systems like DALI, MidJourney, we type text and we see an image. The next step is going to be um, creating videos and more complicated um, um, you know, forms of media. Uh, together. Uh, and we're already seeing examples of uh, music videos created by AI systems. Um, but uh, it would be really awesome if we could type, you know, uh, create a video of a dog chasing, you know, a stick. <laughs> and then right. the AI would create the actual video um, that not only recognizes what a dog chasing a stick is, but also knows all the relationships um, that have to be in the video in order for us to process that the dog is creating a stick. Right. The dog is running towards the stick. 
is jumping to get the stick or is sniffing, you know, to <laughs> understand what it is. All these aspects are basically that kind of, uh, you know, horizontal when it comes to type of media and vertical when it comes to the quality. Um, so this is something that is, is, you know, going on right now. What I think will happen at some point is that uh, more and more AI will be uh, basically an appendix of our brain, um, especially with generative AI, we are, uh, we are just, uh, you know, taking our first footsteps in what mm -hmm. is defined as singularity, which is this concept of technology being able to create, um, to produce material at a speed that is so fast that we could never consume it. That's already happening with, say, the material produced with, you know, YouTube or, you know, TikTok. People are producing a ton of material. We would need probably 20 lives in order to see all the videos that are on YouTube right, right. now. But imagine if we take the human out and we put a machine in there that can basically generate as much content as fast as possible. Mm. then that kind of time would become exponential. And, and, and that's what we're actually seeing. Uh, before we wrap up here, you, you mentioned that you are teaching the honors course that involves AI. What other courses that students interested in artificial intelligence or like generative AI, what, what other courses could NKU students take that would put them on a path to learning more or researching these topics? Yes, uh, great question. So my honors course was more uh, to get, you know, the feet in the water uh, when it comes to right. AI. We, uh, we really used it um, very intensely when it comes to, to producing images, but we didn't, we just scratched the surface of, you know, the programming part. The School of Computing and Analytics has um, the data science degree and the computer science degree, and they offer courses that uh, specifically focus on machine learning. And these is these are courses that students can take to learn more about not only you know the general aspects of AI systems, not only they would use AI uh, systems, but they will also learn how to create them and how to modify them, which is, you know, way more uh, interesting and valuable for somebody who has that um, uh, interest. Um, when it comes to my courses specifically, um, in the fall, I'll be teaching a course called Human-Computer Interaction, which basically, where basically students will learn you know, everything about product design, mm -hmm. um, how to think about a digital product, and then refine that idea and implement that. There's a whole process behind it, which mostly involves understanding what users want and then refining prototyping and refining that prototype. And that's what I'll be teaching. Um, and then um, some of my courses entail full stack development, web development and mobile development, which are now more and more connected with AI. Um, if you think that, you know, chat GPT, mid journey, all these systems are available via the web, 
and have a way to communicate with them via um, just programming languages, um, that's a skill that will be very useful uh, for students who want to use um, AI systems out there with programming and you know, create products that leverage AI engines uh, to, uh, to do some tasks. Well, that does it for our time right now. Thanks so much, Dr. Caparuso, for showing up on the podcast. It's been a blast talking to you, and I feel like I've already learned a lot just over the course of this episode. So thanks so much for uh, coming on to Zoom to talk to us today. Thank you so much. And uh, if uh, the listeners have any questions, they can reach out to me. I'll be happy to answer any questions or provide them with more information about uh, topics that I'm interested in, that I do research on, or that I teach. Thank you. Thanks so much. And as always, uh, this has been another episode of the Norsup podcast. Uh, you can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts. And if we're not on there yet, let us know and we'll get on there. We upload episodes every Friday via the NKU Magazine social media channels. So follow us on there or follow us on your favorite podcast app and make sure to tune in every Friday. Once again, this has been Dr. Nicholas Caparuso on the Norse Up Podcast. Bye.